We started a series of messages in the beginning of December, as begun by Thomas, followed by Garrett, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dean, and I get the end of it, which is a real privilege because as the father time of the pastoral staff, (laughs) I get to preach the last sermon of the series, the last message of the year the last day of the year, the last worship service of the year, the last Sunday of the year, and I don't know, maybe some other lasts, I don't know. Not only that, the passage that was assigned to me is so apropos because it's got a bunch of old people in it. (laughs) So here goes. (laughs) Let's bow for a word of prayer first, shall we? Thank you, Father. For this golden opportunity that you've given to me to share from your word that's so dear to my heart and I know dear to those that are gathered here today. Father, your word is alive and it's powerful. And I pray that as I have the opportunity to share it today, that you just guide the words, Lord, and I pray that our hearts will be open to hear the word because it is precious and it's powerful as we enter into this new year of 2018. In Jesus' name, I ask, amen. Ich bin Deutsch. I am German. In fact, I'm about as German as you can get. My grandparents on my father's side immigrated to America in 1904, on my mother's side, 1911. And up until my pre-teens, the church that we attended, the whole services were in German. Eventually, they gave a little English for the young people, and eventually there was a little German for the old people. But it was all in German. Yes, sir, I'm about as German as you can get. Or so I thought, until I sent in a DNA sample (laughs) and saw the results. (laughs) It seems my ethnicity is 36% Great Britain, 26% Scandinavia, 20% Europe South, 10% Europe West, and the rest scattered amongst others, including some Italian. My mom would, and my dad and my grandpa and grandma would probably turn in a grave. They heard those results. But it is what it is. And you're born that way. We have a physical DNA that we're born with. And while I didn't have a choice in my physical DNA, I did have a choice in my spiritual DNA. And I made that choice in that spiritual DNA that Jesus gives 64 years ago. And I'm telling you, in those 64 years, it's been an incredible spiritual adventure. Sometimes two steps forward, sometimes one step back. But an incredible spiritual adventure in what Jesus described in John chapter 10, verse 10. I am come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. 
life and life abundantly, or as some translations says, say, life to its full. Or as Dr. David Jeremiah describes what Jesus said, a life beyond amazing. But what does that life look like? What constitutes a life that is beyond amazing? Well, a biographical sketch that is set forth for us and some individuals that are presented for us in Luke chapter 2, 21 through 40, which we're going to read in just a moment, so you might want to turn in your Bibles to that. Luke 2, chapter 2, 21 through 40, is an account of some amazing individuals who provide us with a descriptive index of a life that is beyond amazing, or as Jesus said, life in its fullness. First of all, as we look at that bio, those biographical sketches of these people in Luke chapter 2, we find that the life that is beyond amazing is a life that makes the invisible seen. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter 2, 21 through 40. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, referring to Jesus, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. 
She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of of Jerusalem. When Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The life that is beyond amazing. As we said, first of all, from this biographical sketch, it is a life of faith that makes the invisible seen. Notice Luke chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Simeon took Jesus into his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. In Simeon's life, we discover, first of all, in his experience, that the life of faith that makes the invisible seen is a discernible faith. It says, Simeon is speaking, and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people, Israel. The word that's translated there, seen, is a unique Greek word. It's the Greek word idon, and it means a perceptual sight. It means seeing something that is beyond the visible. Simeon had a baby, about a 40-day-old baby, in his arms. But he talks about the salvation of light to the Gentiles and and a glory to the people of Israel. You see, he saw more than a baby. He saw beyond the baby. He saw salvation and a God-revealing light. That was the case of the wise men, too. When they came to the house that Jesus was in about two years after his birth, they came to the house, and it says that they fell down and they worshipped him. Now picture that in your mind, in the physical realm. You have the PhDs of that day who are scientists, men of great learning. They're bowing down and worshiping a two-year-old boy. And not only do they worship a two-year-old boy, but they present him the most expensive gifts that you could give of that day, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But you see, what they saw was this hidden sight. They saw beyond a two-year-old boy. They saw a king. They saw the Savior of the world. They saw Jesus, who is salvation. And so these great men of learning bowed down and they worshipped him. It's what happened to the Apostle John, too, after the resurrection. In John chapter 20, we discover that the women saw the empty tomb, and the angel said that Jesus was not here, that he was risen. So they run back, and they tell the disciples, and so Peter and John run to the tomb. And since John is the younger of the two, he gets there first, and it says, he looked in, and he saw that the, empty was, that the tomb was empty. 
And the Greek word used there for see is the word blepo. He just glanced in and he saw that the tomb was empty. And then Peter comes along and he looks in. And the Greek word translated look or see there is the Greek word theoreo. And what Peter saw, he saw the empty tomb, but he also saw some details. He saw that there a napkin was folded really decent, and he saw the empty shell that Jesus was buried in. And then it says that John came in, and he looked again, and here you have the Iden look. It says, and John looked, and he believed. You see, John saw what he saw before. He saw what Peter said. All this was intellectual. There's physical evidence there. But then John looked in, and he saw beyond the empty tomb. He saw beyond the folded napkin, and he believed because he realized Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh, that he would die and rise again, and that Jesus was alive, and that he was his Savior. And he believed. We sing the hymn, In the Cross of Christ I Glory. From the physical viewpoint, why in the world would we glory in an instrument of cruel death? Well, it's because, you see, we hide and see. We see beyond the cross. We see that it was an instrument where Jesus was crucified for our sins, but he no longer is hanging on the cross. That cross is empty, and he's alive now. And he gives us hope. And he renews our life. That is an idency. But it's not only this faith that makes the invisible seen. It's not only a discernible faith, but it's a serene faith. A serene faith. Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. A serene faith. When you've been in the pastorate for a while, you've had many graveside services or funeral services. But at the graveside, by and large, we always quote John chapter 11, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, why in the world would we do that? Hearts are broken, a casket's there or an urn, and we're about to bury, that's about to be buried into the ground. But you see, we see this, especially for those who are believers, and it is a hope when a person's a believer that even though we see a dead body, we see the casket there, and our hearts are breaking, we have hope because we see beyond the grave. And Jesus is now, or this person, this loved one, is now in the presence of Jesus. And so we say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. A life beyond amazing is a life that makes the invisible seen We see like Simeon, we see like the wise men, we see like John, and we believe. Furthermore, a life 
that is beyond amazing is a life that is centered on Jesus. Notice the biographical sketch again. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, his name was Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Back in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 32, it says, The angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called a son of the Most High. You see, the life that is amazing is a life that is centered upon Jesus because of his nature. In Matthew, 21, uh, Matthew 1, 23, it says, they, call, they will call him Emmanuel, which is, means God with us. It's God in the flesh that we worship. It was Christmas Eve. It was in the Midwest, and oh, it was so immersively cold. I heard from my kids in Iowa, the temperature is 20 below. And they don't know what the wind chill factor is, but it was very cold outside. And uh, Farmer, Farmer John, it was Christmas Eve, and he was kind of hardened. But his wife was a believer, and she was going to go to church that night, and so she got ready and finally left for the Christmas Eve service. You know, Farmer John, he sat by the fireside. It was nice and cozy, and he just decided to enjoy the night. Finally, he hears this thump, this incredible noise, thumping, and he looks up, and he sees his bird flying into his big picture window, trying to come in from the cold into the nice warmth of the fire. And finally, the, uh, Farmer John had compassion upon the birds, and so he went out and he opened the barn door. And he went over to the birds and he tried to shoo the birds into the barn door, but they flew off into the night, possibly to their death. And he came in and he sat down in his chair again, and he's thinking about this. He said, you know, they were afraid of me because I couldn't speak bird language. They didn't understand what I was trying to do. And it suddenly dawned on him why God had to come down in the flesh in order that he might speak man language, man speak, so that we might understand in human terms what God was all about, God in the flesh speaking man's language. Oh, my friends, It's a life centered upon the Lord Jesus, but it's not only because of His nature, but it's because He is the Savior. Matthew 1.21, give Him the name of Jesus. The word translated there, Jesus, is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. There's something about that name. Over the years, I've seen that name transform hardened sinners I've seen that name tread, uh, defeat the power of Satan. I've seen that name give courage and boldness in threatening situations, even in life-threatening ones. There's something about that name. It's powerful because it means salvation. It transforms. But we live a life, the life that is beyond amazing is a life centered on Jesus, thirdly, because of our own identity. We're called Christian. 
you take Christ out of Christian, we're simply eon. We're Christian. It's our identity. It's our spiritual DNA. And it's not only our spiritual DNA, but we act as though it's our spiritual DNA in our everyday life. We follow what 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32-33, if anyone acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will openly acknowledge that person before my Father who is in heaven. But anyone who denies me here upon this earth, I will deny that person before my Father who is in heaven. A life that is beyond amazing is a life centered on Jesus. Thirdly, it's a life of obedience. Again, notice the biographical sketch of these people in Luke 2, 22-34. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the land. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. A life of obedience, first of all, involves knowing God's word. You notice Mary and Joseph? It says they did these things according as it is written in the law of the Lord, which means they had to know the law of the Lord. Now, Mary wasn't very old at that time, probably in her early teens. Joseph was much older, probably. But they knew God's word at that time, and they followed it to the letter. They were obedient. It's like Psalm 119.11 in the Amplified Version. It says, I bank your promises in the vault of my heart. You know God's word, and if you know God's word, you're able to obey it. Not only that, a life of obedience involves God's word being in play in our lives. Forty days after Jesus' birth, which is the time of purification, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law. They not only knew the God's word, but they acted upon it because it was God's word. It's a message of James 1.22, according to the message, act on what you hear. It's the message of the first verse of a hymn that we sing, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Life beyond amazing is a life of obedience. And fourthly, it's a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. A life controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
Notice Luke 2, 25-27. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Simeon's bio sketch here gives us three clues to a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's evidenced by a godly moral character. It says that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. The word translated there, righteous and devout, has to do not only in God's sight, but in his fellow man's sight. Everybody knew Simeon to be a righteous and devout man. Secondly, it's evidenced by a responsive action to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It says, Simeon, moved by the Spirit, went into the temple courts. He was constantly guided by the Spirit of God. Several years ago, my brother Rich had come home from the Navy, and he'd gotten this job, and he was kind of wild. He grew up in the same home I did, a very spiritual home. My dad found the Lord uh, later on in life, but my brother Rich never really had much for the things of God. He didn't have a choice in the matter. You went to church because my dad said, you go to church. But when he went in the Navy, he just kind of chucked it all. And he came home, and he got this job, and he got married. And finally, one day at the job, something happened that should have taken his life. And it didn't, but it really shook him up. So he decided that Sunday, he better go to church. And so he went to the church, which you know, the denomination that I'm ordained in, the free church. And so he visited the church. And that week, the pastor of the church, who was a former classmate of mine, went to visit him. And he talked to him, and Rich shared what had happened to him. And Pastor Leroy said, uh, Rich, don't you think it's about time that you surrendered your life to the Lord? And he said, absolutely. So his wife, Diane, came in, and they bowed, and Rich Asked the Lord into his life. The next day, he's driving to work, which is about 35 miles, and he sees this hippie couple hitching a ride on the side of the road. My brother, as he related this story to me, he says, I never stop for anybody hitchhiking. First of all, it'll make me late to work if I do. But he said, as I saw this hippie couple, this great, incredible compulsion in me to stop the car and let them come in. And he said, I was arguing with God about this. And he said, it's like somebody picked up my foot and rammed it on the brake and it stopped the car. And he said, the hippie couple came up and they got into the car. And so they're driving down the road making small talk. And as they're making small talk, again, my brother Rich said this credible compulsion in me to tell him about Jesus. And he argued with God. He says, God, what am I going to say? <coughs> Excuse me. What am I going to say? He says, you know, I just asked you into my life, Lord, uh, last night, and I'm not a great theologian. How, how, what am I going to say to him? But it's incredible. It's so intense on him. And finally he shouted out, do you know Jesus? <laughs> and the kippy couple kind of looked at him, kind of shocked, and they said, you know, I can't believe it. 
The guy who gave us a ride before you picked us up asked us that same question. And so my brother said, pull over the side of the road. He was going to be late at work, you know. But pull over the side of the road. He said, well, I don't know how much to say to you, but all I can tell you is that you've got to ask Jesus into your life and ask him to forgive your sin and give your life to Jesus. Would you like to do that? And he said, yes. Yeah. So he leads him to the Lord. And then he told him, he says, now, he says, when I drop you off, he says, make sure that you read the Bible and pray. I know you've got to do that. And he said, make sure you find a church where they preach Jesus. And so, you know, he let the couple off. That's a great illustration, you see, of being controlled and guided by the Spirit. And believe me, when you live a life controlled by the Spirit, the Spirit will guide you. He will speak to you. But thirdly, A life controlled by the Holy Spirit is evidenced by living in patient expectation. Notice Simeon in verse 25. It says, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. The word waiting here means confident patience. And patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. A life that is beyond amazing is a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna, all give biblical testimony of a life that is beyond amazing. Honestly, the bottom line of it all is it's it's a life that is centered on Jesus. Jesus who said of himself, I have come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. It's living a life not in defeat, and disarray. It's living a life of joy and peace and serenity and calmness beyond amazing. It's more than amazing. It's living with the conviction, as the song goes, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand. I know who holds my hand. Let's bow for prayer.